This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org local. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Hello and welcome to the Music To My Ears podcast, brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music monthly. This week we're speaking to the Australian saxophonist Amy Dixon about the music that shaped her life, from Spanish piano music to Philip Glass. Sydney-born Amy Dixon rose to fame in the UK after she became the first saxophonist to win the gold medal at the Royal Overseas League competition in 2004. Throughout her career, she's remained committed to commissioning new music and writing her own transcriptions of existing works, such as Philip Glass's Violin Concerto, a recording for which she's best known. As well as performing across the world as a soloist, she has also founded the Take a Breath programme, designed to help young children learn breathing techniques to help with stress. She met our editorial assistant, Freya Parr, at our studio here in Bristol before the UK lockdown began. Right, so welcome to Bristol. Thank you. <laughs> um, this is a podcast all about listening and the music you love and that kind of has defined your life. So how do you tend to listen? Do you listen on the go or do you kind of tend to plant yourself at home and really chow down on some good stuff? Yeah, the way I listen to music depends on what is happening in my life. I'm either touring or I'm at home. And when I'm at home, I just stay at home. <laughs> I'm, yeah, a bit of a hermit, but... Um, uh, so if I'm, I, I love listening to music when I'm traveling, if I'm on a plane or on a train and I just hear it differently, especially on trains for some reason. Um, and then, and if I'm at home, I, I guess it's more kind of work, like just listening to, to repertoire, listening for repertoire, trying to find new repertoire things that I can 
transcribe or arrange or, you know, turn into saxophone repertoire. So are you a streamer or are you a record listener? Yeah. How do you tend to listen? I am now a streamer. You've transitioned. <laughs> it's just turned into this. It, it's so convenient. You know, if somebody says, go and listen to this, it might sound good on the saxophone. I can actually that second put it on my Spotify. So on to the first probing question. <laughs> so what was the first piece of classical music you fell in love with? I think... Um, the first piece, well, the, the first piece that I can remember that I really, really loved was is called a piece called Andalusia by Ernesto Lacona, and it was it's this kind of rollicking, um, kind of Spanish sounding kind of fun piece on piano, and I used to have it on a tape. It was this obscure tape with a compilation that some pianist had put out. I don't even know remember who it was but I was very very young and my mum had it in the car and I used to listen to it in the car and then annoyingly for everybody else in the car I would as soon as it came to the last note press rewind and I'd know how many seconds I had to count it before I had to press stop so we could get exactly to the first note again. <laughs> so you drove everyone nuts with that, Completely that nuts. habit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> It's funny there's something about listening in a car that you it's like how you mentioned how you listen on the train. There's something about there being absolutely no distractions other yeah. than the kind of passing of yeah. the landscape outside that really makes you kind of tap into those. Completely. And yeah. you just hear music differently. My dad's the same, actually. He never listens. He never watches films on planes and he's always on a plane. So he only listens to to music. It's, um, yeah, it's a wonderful way to listen to music, especially with the headphones that you can get these days. It's great. Yeah, and also I guess with back in the day with all those cassettes that we had, very, like everyone had very few things and like things to listen to in the car. So you kind of tended to repeat, listen to like a set, a few, like a few exactly. cassettes again and again and again. <laughs> yeah, I loved cassettes. <laughs> were you when you kind of first encountered that piece of music? Oh, mm, five, six, seven, that kind of age, I think. And is that a piece you kind of came back to in later life? Yeah, so I, I was um, also a pianist until I was about 18. Piano was my main instrument. And when I was about 15 or 16, my mum, bless her heart, um, went to uh, called everywhere that she could think of to try and find the score for this piece. Couldn't find it anywhere. But there was one really um, obscure library in Western Sydney. It was about an hour and a half drive from our house. And she drove and hired it from this library so I could play it. And <laughs> it's, yeah, it's very sweet. That's quite <laughs> interesting that your first kind of way into classical music wasn't with a convent, like a traditional Bach or Mozart or mm. Brahms or someone like that, it was kind of through that kind of Latin American entry. Do you think that kind of, I don't know, if it influenced your later interest in that genre and how it intersected with classical music? I think it probably just symbolises a, a wide interest in different genres because I, um, yeah, I, I still, I played completely different things from day to day. Completely different things, and you. A lot of the time, it, it's just it just depends upon 
how I'm feeling at the time as to what project I go for and um, or what's going on in my life. And, yeah, there's a lot of variety in what I do probably because of the nature of the instrument that I play. Yeah, that's very true. Fab. So another look back over your kind of musical life. This is the million-dollar question for most music lovers of any genre. What is the best concert you've ever been to? Gosh, I <laughs> that is probably the hardest question to answer. And, of course, I've been to a lot of amazing concerts. Um, the one that just, I don't know why, but it just jumps out in my mind is I went to the Royal Festival Hall, I think in 2011, to um, hear Please Sell On Plea. And Boulez was conducting, Barbara Hannigan was singing. And it just, I don't know if it was the last time that he conducted it, but it was certainly one of the last times. And it just felt like this momentous night and that the atmosphere was extraordinary and I think everybody in that audience really 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 wanted to be there because they knew how special it was um and yeah I don't know it's just the spirit of the evening I think a lot of the time concert halls have have a spirit and I find that often when I turn up to to play in a concert you know you can just feel the atmosphere and sometimes that lends itself to the experience of the concert more than a lot of other things that is I mean, like it's a pretty stellar lineup that you mentioned there with yeah. Barbara Hannigan and Boulez. <laughs> is that a piece that you've heard again in concert elsewhere, or do you think it was just the kind of the chemistry of that evening? It was the chemistry. It was yeah. yeah it was the atmosphere, the chemistry. It was just uh, electric. It was amazing. Okay, so this is kind of your desert island question, really. Mm. Which piece do you not think you could ever live without? The piece I think I couldn't live without, but more from a playing perspective than a listening perspective, although I love to listen to it, is Philip Glass's first violin concerto. And it's the reason for that is um, I transcribed it about 10 or 11 years ago and um, of a soprano saxophone and have ended up playing that more than any other piece of repertoire. And it's just become my my thing. I play it a lot and I absolutely love listening to it and um, it really tugs at the heartstrings for me and um, every time I play it there's still something really new to discover in it. One of it's a piece that you've recorded quite I think twice have you recorded it I've recorded the concerto once and yeah. um, I also recorded his violin sonata yeah and um, some arrangements of some of the pieces that he wrote for the film The Hours yes so what is it about his music in particular that really stands out to you I guess he kind of does a bit of that crossover mm. of various genres that you spoke of that really interests you yeah um, the things that I love Especially about the pieces that I've recorded of Philip Glasses is uh, they they are they just draw 
me in in a very emotional way. <laughs> um, I remember the first time I was played the violin concerto and um, it was by a, a friend invited me around to his house and played me this recording of Gidon Kramer performing it and um, and, and I loved it and um, I was feeling quite emotional at the time. My parents were getting divorced and it was just a bit of a rough time anyway. And that piece just really hit something in my heart. And this friend said to me, oh, um, do you think you could play that on the saxophone? And I said, no, don't be stupid. <laughs> There's nowhere to breathe. And, you know, it's completely out of range. And, I'd, you know, it's just way too high. And I'd have to change loads of notes. Anyway, I became so obsessed with it over the months that followed that I um, I tried it out and I wrote out a straight transcription without altering any notes because when I transcribe I really try very hard not to <laughs> change any notes if possible and sometimes that means months and months of practice to kind of get my fingers around, especially the really high notes. But anyway, I I did it and then I worked on it for a bit and then I asked Philip Glass for permission to record it, which he very kindly gave. And um yeah, and then so I recorded it with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra and I've been performing it ever since. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been a, become a very close piece to my heart. So I would imagine there's quite a lot of circular breathing involved in that yes. to kind of keep those phrases going because even on the violin it's relentless. Mm, what yeah. was your process of kind of working with that piece and really... Yeah, it was interesting. I didn't know how to circular breathe when I decided to ask Philip Glass for permission. Wow, <laughs> I'm bold. an ambitious person. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a bit of an idiot. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, so he said yes, and we brought to the orchestra. <laughs> I thought, gosh. <laughs> so I, um, I just, I just taught myself. Really, I uh, had, I have a very good friend who's a didgeridoo player, so I kind of watched him. But um, I just did it a little bit, kind of half an hour every day, and uh, it was the most miraculous kind of process. It was like learning to learning a new life skill as an adult, and to witness that growth process was really, really interesting. And so, you know, after two weeks, I could I could kind of do it, and then after six months, I could do it without people being able to tell that I was doing it. Um, uh, and to go from that, from nothing to that was really interesting. Yeah, that's incredible. So is that, obviously you've performed that and that's a piece that you really have quite a connection with as a as a player, it sounds mm. like. Do you feel a similar connection when you hear violinists play it or do you think it's that experience of playing it yourself that really yeah, strikes I, a chord? I do feel um, very connected to the piece when I hear violinists playing it. Um, however, I think it's a very different piece of music and usually violinists who hear me performing it um, say that they think it's a really, really different piece of music. And, um, you know, that's part of the beauty of, of the transcription process. One of the, the most interesting things for me is that um, the soprano saxophone can have this, a similar tone colour to various woodwind instruments within the orchestra, which the violin doesn't have. And so especially in the second movement, there are passages where the solo part is mirrored by um, various, various woodwind instruments. And so we kind of merge into each other and pr produce this homogenous kind of effect, uh, which is completely different to when it's a violin playing the solo line. Um, so, yeah, little things like that I find very it just interesting. brings out different elements yeah, of the orchestra. Yeah. yeah, that's great. So obviously that's something that you've had to work on as a kind of a transcription and a, an arrangement. Do you have to be quite 
um, creative with the repertoire that you play for the sax because obviously it's still fairly limited in the scheme of things. Mm. Yeah, I'm constantly transcribing. I spend a lot of time, most days, sitting there writing things out by hand, <laughs> um, which is which is great. Sometimes you know it doesn't work. Sometimes it does. Um, from I also work with composers a lot, and you know from my experience of working with composers, I think that the composers who yeah, I think most composers are probably up for people trying out things like that. Um, so I would like to think that most of the time they would approve what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> but I try and arrange pieces that were written by living composers as much as I can so that I can ask them for their permission before I record it or anything like that. Do you tend to li- liaise with them when you're kind of um, bringing the piece to life or is it just a kind of that permission that you need and want? As much as I, the interaction with composers is basically as much as I can get. <laughs> um, often, if a composer is about to write me a concerto, I ask them if I can transcribe one of their previous pieces, maybe a solo piece or maybe something with piano, um, so that they can hear the way I would play their music and the way their music would sound on the saxophone. If they, especially if they haven't written for the saxophone before, if they have, then that's not that important. But um, it's. It, I find that that often um, just uh, brings out all sorts of, you know, m- many more ideas in the composition of, of, of the concerto later on. Mm. Constantly expanding the repertoire. That's great. <laughs> if you're enjoying the music so far, do head to this episode's Spotify playlist where you can find complete performances of all the pieces discussed, as well as some bonus tracks. You'll find the link in the podcast description. Fab, so bringing everything kind of back up to date and planting ourselves firmly in 2020, what would you say your current musical obsession is? Um, at the moment, I'm working on a very, very exciting project, which unfortunately has to remain secret, with uh, somebody from a different musical world <laughs> to mine. <laughs> Um, and uh, and we're playing different songs uh, to each other just to get to know each other's way of way of playing. And um, I find it absolutely fascinating to see how somebody from a different musical world will interpret exactly the same song to how I do. Um, but uh, and so yeah, this this the thing that I'm fascinated with at the moment is um, the the different emphasis on different notes and the different way that people will sing that through their instruments. So how do you, are you kind of, when you're playing together with this other nameless individual, <laughs> <laughs> what, are you ten, what are you performing and what are you showing them that you from your world? Well, I, I think just generally, if, if somebody were to, to play a song and, um, you know, a singer would sing it in, in one way, um, a, Maybe a jazz singer would sing it in one way and a classical singer would sing it in, in another and I would play it in a completely different way um, because of the nature of, um, of the way somebody plays the violin. They would play it in a different way to I, the way I play it and, this, you know, different on again on any other instrument. And um, a lot of that comes down to the physical nature of playing and the um, the even, you know, the way we hold our instruments when we play that can dictate the way we phrase or um, the way we interpret music, actually. Um, 
and uh, uh, you know, and so we can constantly learn from people of different instruments and different genres. Yeah, there's a lot to be taken and from that kind of completely cross. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> cross cultural things yeah. like that. That's brilliant. Yeah. So if you do you um do you listen to music from outside the classical genre as an as a kind of enjoyer of music as well? Definitely, and um and also as um you know as something to work on. I I listen to um a lot of different genres, a lot of different genres for. Um, to to try to see what I might be able to play on the saxophone, and I will play in it in a different way. Uh, play it in a different way, but you know it will be um, the same piece, I guess. Do you, uh, if you're working on a piece in particular, do you enjoy listening to different interpretations of that, or do you try and listen as far away from that particular world of music as you possibly can? Because I think people have quite different view- artists have different views to what they should be listening to when they're performing. Um. I mean, it depends what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you know that certain pieces of music uh, require a lot of um, respect to the composer and um, reference to the score, and you know you can't deviate too much. <laughs> but then other things like folk music, or um, uh, I, you know, it's more done by ear, and uh, uh, and and so yes, listening is is, is hugely important, and um, I. You know, I, I, I suppose I, I would study that even more because I'm not that familiar with that that genre. But um, you know, yeah, it just depends on the genre, I guess. So, are your playlists on your various streaming platforms quite eclectic then? <laughs> <sighs> yes, in fact, to the extent that every time I make a playlist, I usually take it down instantly if it's been made public and my record company are constantly berating me for that (laughs) because it's just I can't I I listen to a lot of music but if anyone ever says what are you listening to I kind of you know just I can't I can't say it because it will change you know if in a few hours time completely change so if I put you on the spot right now (laughs) and you got out your phone and you checked your musical thing what would be the last played thing on your phone Mr Bojangles because (laughs) I was dancing around the bedroom with my (laughs) two-year-old that's good I like it It can either be ABBA it can be Wagner like anywhere in between Fabulous. Well, I think that is perfect. That's a great set of musical recommendations for us to all go away and listen to. So I will send you on your way with Mr. Bojangles. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. A newer man, Bojangles, and he danced for you. That was saxophonist Amy Dixon on the music that's defined her life. If you want to hear more from Amy, she's hosting a series of solo sessions during lockdown, which are available on her YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Amy Dixon. Each week, she performs a piece for solo saxophone and interviews the work's composer via video link from her home in London. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Tune in next week when we'll be speaking to another musician about their musical loves. And please do subscribe to this podcast and rate and review it wherever you've been listening. If you want to find more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and various digital formats, or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read all about the latest musical happenings, read thousands of reviews, and a good deal more. Thank you to ACAST for hosting this podcast, and to our producers, Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman.